You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So when we read a passage like this in the Old Testament, it can really make us feel the distance between ourselves and the ancient people of Israel. Exodus 28, which Joshua just read, describes for us how Aaron, the high priest, was supposed to dress. And when we read that description, when we hear that description, and we try to imagine how he must have looked in those clothes, we can think, man, this guy was from another world, right? As we just heard that, we tend to think that way. And I just want you to know that if we think that way about how the high priest dressed, That's actually not a difference that we have with the ancient people of Israel, but it's something that we have in common. Here's what I mean. Use your imagination for a minute. Imagine that the high priest dressed the way that is described here in Exodus 28. Imagine that he walks into this room, okay? Just imagine that he walks in over here to my right from the north transept. You're just sitting here, you know, just, you know, part of worship. And then you kind of glance over and you catch in your eye this person, this man wearing a long sleeve oatmeal colored tunic or coat. And it's long uh, down to his, the ends of his, of his arms and his feet, and it's got this checkered pattern. And then over this tunic, he has on a robe that's completely blue. And at the bottom of the robe, toward his feet, there are blue, purple, and red pomegranates that are sewn into the hem. And then between these pomegranates, there are golden bells. And then above this robe that he has on, he has this afad or a a vest. And this vest is gold and blue and purple and red and it's beautifully woven together. And on the shoulders of this vest, he has these two onyx stones. And on on each side of of his, of his, his shoulders here, and on each of these stones, he has engraved the 12 tribes of Israel. And then over this vest that he has on, which is over the robe, which is over the tunic, he's wearing this square breast piece. And on this square breast piece, he has four rows of precious stones. And these are stones that shine. Sapphire, emerald, diamond. These are stones that we still know about today, but few of us, if any of us, have ever seen stones this size in real life. And he's wearing them. You glance over and he's wearing them right here over his heart. And also on those stones, just like on his shoulders, he has one of the names of the 12, twi- uh, the 12 tribes of Israel engraven in them. And that whole thing is attached to the onyx stones on his shoulders by this braided golden chain. That's connecting them right here. And then on his head, he's wearing a turban. And on the turban, right at his forehead, attached to it, is this golden plate. It's attached by a blue cord. And this golden plate has engraven on it, holy to Yahweh. If a guy dressed like that were to walk into this room over here, guess what we're all doing? Right? We're all looking. We're all checking out what is this? Who is this person? And this is what I want you to get. Go back thousands of years ago in Israel's history and people would have done the exact same thing. Don't think that Exodus 28 is describing how people dressed in the ancient world. That's not what's happening here. 
You can take any time period you want, take any culture you want. It doesn't matter. Go anywhere. And if we see a man dressed like this walk into the room, he gets our attention. And that's the point. That's the point. Now, I know in your Bible, the heading above chapter 28 probably says something like the priest garments. And we're going to talk about that today. But also, I want you to know, we're going to talk about a lot more than that, okay? A lot more than the priest's garments. God willing, this morning, in Exodus chapter 28, we're going to see three things here and how they're connected. Three things. Number one, the presence of God. Number two, the meaning of dress. And then number three, the purpose of the priesthood. And I believe that in this chapter, through these three things, I believe we find here a fresh vantage into the glory of Jesus and what it means to be his people. And I can't wait to show you, okay? So let's pray again, and then we're going to get started. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your Holy Spirit, who we believe speaks through your word. He does. And so we ask now that by his ministry, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look first at the presence of God. Number one is the presence of God. And the reason we're starting with the presence of God is because that's the theme of the context of Exodus 28. Remember that in chapters 25 to 31, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and for 40 nights. And God now is telling him, he's giving him the instructions for the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, as we saw last week, is simply the provisional place where God will dwell with his people as they journey to the land that God promised Abraham. And even as I say that, I just think it would be helpful for us to take a step back and to try to see this thing from, uh, from a little bit more out, zoomed out from where we are. So for just a few minutes here, I want us to try to, to, try to put all this into, into the, the storyline of Scripture. We're going to zoom out for a minute, and I want us to start with God. Okay, so we're zooming out, and the first thing to say is that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the one true God, the one who was and is and will always be. He is the great I am. He is the God who will be who he will be, the God of infinite, immeasurable glory, and the God who creates, who by his creating shares the experience of his glory outside himself. God reflects his glory in the things that he has made for the things that he has made. And why he does this is inexplicable other than that he is good. God is in his nature, generous. He's generous. That's why he made humans. God intends. He intends for us to be his image bearers who are uniquely created to resemble and reflect his glory as we live in the joy of his presence in the Garden of Eden that expands as we are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's glory gets magnified. Our joy gets maximized. That is the plan. That's the plan. But the problem, as we know, is that through Adam's sin, the world fell under the curse of sin, and everything since Genesis 3 has been broken. Humans by nature 
under sin rebel against God. We are bent to turn away from God and to worship other things instead of Him. And that's not just an ancient problem. That's the biggest problem in this room right now. It's that left to ourselves, in our sin, we are doomed. We're doomed. And and only the foolish ignore that. Because we know by now, right? By Genesis 11, we know by now that we need to be saved and that self-salvation projects don't work. Adam, Noah, Babel, it was all failure until God, God steps in and makes a promise to Abraham. And that's when the failure of the holy creation gave way to the building of a holy people. The children of Abraham, the people of Israel, were the people that God chose for himself. He set them free from slavery in Egypt so that they would be his treasured possession, so that they would be his holy nation, so that they would be his kingdom of priests who live in the place that he provides. That's where we're headed in the book of Exodus. When we cross the Red Sea, we are going to the promised land. But there are some roadblocks. In Exodus 19, on Mount Sinai, we read that God calls the whole people of Israel to himself. All of Israel was supposed to go up on the mountain as God's people. But they were too afraid. And so, instead, they begged Moses to be their mediator. And that's when God established the priesthood. The people of Israel lack the faith to be a kingdom of priests. And so God graciously set apart one tribe, the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his sons, to be priests for them. Now Exodus 28 is going to talk about this in the context of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, again, that Pastor Joe explained last week, the tabernacle was meant to be God's provisional dwelling place among his people. And even just in the Old Testament, the tabernacle points both forwards and backwards. Just in the Old Testament. It, when it comes to pointing forward in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is what matures into the temple. The temple is God's dwelling place that was built in Jerusalem. When it comes to pointing backwards, the tabernacle was a reminder of the Garden of Eden. And this part, Pastor Joe mentioned last week, but I want to mention it again because it's just so fascinating. The textual connections between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden are undeniable. The pure gold in the tabernacle is the same as the pure gold in Eden, Genesis chapter 2, verse 11. The precious stones in the tabernacle are the same stones we read about in the Garden of Eden. The blue, purple, and red curtains in the tabernacle were meant to look like the sky above Eden. And then, of course, the lampstand in the tabernacle was made to look like a tree. And so as as readers of the Bible, we're supposed to, to read about the tabernacle and hear echoes from the Garden of Eden, which was the original place of God's presence. The tabernacle was meant to be this echo of Eden 
that Israel takes with them. This is how God would dwell with his people. Chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 25, verse 22. There I will meet with you. 29, verse 42. I will meet with you to speak to you. 29, verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. So the tabernacle then reminded Israel of God's presence in the past. It provided Israel a way to God's presence in the current, and it pointed Israel to the hope of God's presence forever in the future. The theme of the tabernacle is the presence of God. That's what all this is about. And we see that when we're tracking with the storyline of Scripture. God in his mercy is making a way to be with his people. He has not given up on Eden. He's not. That's the context, see, of where we are. And then, suddenly, in Exodus 28, we read about clothes. Now, we're going to talk, this is number two, getting straight to the meaning of dress. And we're going to talk about dress, but I really want to get to the priesthood. Okay, that's where I'm going, so just bear with me for a few minutes here. It's interesting in Exodus 28 that up to this point in Scripture, we don't know a whole lot about priest. Most of the details about priests come later in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Exodus 28 is the first time that priests are really introduced. And all we're really told is how they look. And in particular, we are told how the high priest is supposed to dress. We are introduced to the high priest by what he wears. And that only makes sense to us if we understand the meaning of dress, at least a little bit, at least in general. So let's talk about that. Now, when I say the word dress, just to be clear, I'm not talking about like a dress, okay? I'm saying this from Omaha because I keep saying dress, and I, I'm not talking about like a dress dress. I'm talking about like what you dress in, okay? So when I say, when I say dress, think about like clothing and dormants. It's like tunic and turban and sash uh, or bells. It's like a sweater, a hat, and a watch. Your dress is basically all the pieces that you dress yourself in. That's what makes up our dress, okay? And the meaning of dress in the Bible is to communicate the person. The meaning of dress is to communicate the person. And now look, to be clear, there is no doubt that sinful humans distort this meaning. The use of dress gets distorted, we see, in the Bible. The use of dress gets distorted today. It's distorted, but the intended meaning is still there. And that's what I want to talk about. The meaning of dress is a nonverbal communication system to convey the dignity of office or occasion. That means that dress is not meant to convey or meant to be some type of profane suggestiveness, or it's not meant to be status symbol competition. Those are distortions of dress, see? But the meaning of dress, the intended meaning of dress, is to show the dignity of office or occasion. And that's not just the case in the Bible, but this has really been the case all throughout human history in all different types of culture. 
And we, we see this, we know this intuitively today, even in our modern egalitarian context. Here's an example. When it comes to communicating office, your mailman does not dress the same as your commercial airline pilot. Think about that. Your mailman does not dress the same as your commercial airline pilot. And my sense is we tend to like that, okay? If, if you're about to board the plane and you look over and you see your pilot wearing a safari hat and a satchel, you're not getting on the plane. I'm not getting on the plane, okay? I want my pilot to wear a captain's hat and have those things on his shoulders that pilots do. You know what I'm talking about? I want him to look that way, okay? We know this. This happens. We do this all the time. We see this way all the time. Dress conveys office. It conveys office. Now, when it comes to occasion, this is the easiest because we do this all the time. When we go to a wedding, we don't dress like we're going to the pool, right? Or when we go to a funeral, we don't dress like we're going to a twins game. This is obvious. We do this all the time. Dress is meant to convey. It's meant to communicate office or occasion. Our dress either says, this is what I do, or this is what I think about where I am. And because that's true, intuitive, because that's true, it's natural. Because that's true, when we read about the high priest and how he dresses in Exodus 28, we're supposed to get the idea of his purpose even before it's explained. The way the high priest dresses communicates, and so then what does it tell us? Well, just examine the pieces that are mentioned here. Use your imagination, okay? We can see it. His garments first we see in verse 2 and verse 40 were for glory and for beauty. Okay, so what are the details? Well, the gold on his afad or his vest, that gold was just like the gold in the tabernacle. The precious stones, the four rows of precious stones that were on his breastpiece were just like the precious stones in the tabernacle. The blue, purple, and red robe that he wore was just like the curtains in the tabernacle. Therefore, it's safe to assume that whatever the tabernacle pointed to, the high priest's garments pointed to the same thing. And as we've already seen, it's the Garden of Eden. All of this... In this section of Exodus, the tabernacle and the high priest, it pointed to the Garden of Eden, which was the original presence of God. But whereas the tabernacle was the place to minister God's presence, the high priest was the person to minister God's presence. And so far, we can say that just because of what he's wearing, which is what chapter 28 wants us to do. This is what chapter 28 wants us to see. Let's say now, take what we see, what we read in Exodus 28. Now let's add to it what we learn about the priesthood later in Leviticus and Numbers. Okay, so this is the third point. We've done number one, the presence of God. Number two, the meaning of dress. This is number three, the purpose of the priesthood. Now already, again, because of his clothes, just by what he's wearing, we, we can see that the high priest pointed to the presence of God. 
He was a reminder of God's presence. And this goes for the whole priesthood. Overall, the essence of the priesthood was to help others draw near to God. That's the main purpose that we see laid out in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. And so here's my definition for the priesthood. Priest, on behalf of God, in service to others, help others draw near to God by guarding the right worship of God and by making sacrifices. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Priests defend and they atone. Both are violent work. They defend and atone. And as we've seen, there are two types of priests. There's first the normal priest from the tribe of Levi, and then there's one high priest who was chosen among them. And while all the priests were charged to keep and guard the right worship of God and to make daily sacrifices, in the book of Leviticus we read that it's only the high priest who can enter the Holy of Holies, which he does only once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he goes in there to make atonement for the sins of the whole people. On that day of atonement is when the high priest represented all of Israel, which connects back to his dress. It connects back to the the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel that he had on his shoulders and on the breastpiece. Chapter 28, verse 12. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. Chapter 28, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment and on his heart. And when he goes into the holy place to bring them into regular remembrance before Yahweh. So the high priest, dressed as he was, symbolized all of Israel. When he approached Yahweh in the holy of holies, in the center of the Garden of Eden, he went there for the whole people. And again, even as I say this, I feel it. This can make us feel the distance between ourselves and the ancient people of Israel. This kind of mediation with its stipulations and specifications, what, what Israel experienced, like, it's, it's very different from what we experience. It was. It was. But not completely. See, all that we're reading about in Exodus, the tabernacle and the priesthood, it's like grammar that God gives us to understand the gospel. Because we have a high priest too. Going back to the storyline of scripture, the failure of a holy creation gave way to the failure of a holy people. And we're going to see this failure in a couple weeks in chapter 32, but just, you know, the cast out of the bag here, okay? Israel fails. They're faithless. They do not become the people that God called them to be. And so the failure of a holy creation gave way to the failure of a holy people. And so God sent a holy man. He sent us a high priest. His name is Jesus. And how can we even begin to understand what he did for us without the Old Testament? Without Exodus in these chapters. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is the book that makes these connections the clearest. At least 17 times in the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is our great high priest. And every time the writer makes that case by repeating one Old Testament quote after another. Thank God for the Old Testament scriptures. 
Trying to read the New Testament without the Old Testament in mind is like watching TV in black and white. The reason that we have the book of Exodus, the reason that we have Exodus chapter 28 is so that we would know more about Jesus and so that we would be able to see him in all of his colorful glory. Now, the book of Hebrews is the only New Testament book that explicitly calls Jesus our high priest. But if we have the Old Testament in mind, we can see Jesus acting as our high priest right away. In the Gospel of Luke, for example, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 had the transfiguration, remember Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And on this mountain, Jesus is transfigured. And when Jesus is transfigured, guess what Luke tells us first? His clothes changed. He became dazzling white. And then glory appeared. And there was Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about his departure. And the word there is exodus. And this glory is there. This conversation is happening. And when Peter sees this, do you remember what Peter wants to do? He wants to build some tents. He wants to build some tabernacles. Because they knew, Peter knew, he knew that he was beholding, he was looking at the most holy place of God. Peter, James, and John were able to see the glory of God on that mountain. And Jesus was right at the center of it. See, Jesus is the high priest of God's heavenly sanctuary. That's the one that Eden copied, that the tabernacle and later the temple pointed to. And what this means for us in the Gospels is that Jesus, did, he didn't just happen to become the high priest later on in the story, but Jesus was actually sent here as our high priest. He came. He came here as our high priest. And after the transfiguration, after the disciples and Jesus come off the mountain, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, when he gets there in chapter 19, what's the first thing he does? He cleanses the temple. He goes into the temple and he performs his priestly duty of guarding the right worship of God. And after he does that, what does he do? Make sacrifice. He goes to Jerusalem to cleanse the temple and to make sacrifice, but it's not just any sacrifice. This is the moment when the great high priest himself became, became, he became the sacrifice. The high priest in this moment offered himself as the once for all atonement for our sins. He did not just bear our guilt and shame, but he paid for it himself. Jesus on the cross, our great high priest, he sacrificed himself for you. He sacrificed himself for you. And because Jesus is raised from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand, Jesus right now, right now, Jesus is in the most holy place, not with our names engraven on his shoulders, but our names are written in his wounds. Jesus as our high priest, 
It means that in the heavenly sanctuary of God, to use your imagination for a minute here, Jesus as our high priest ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, it means that there is not a moment that passes by the heavenly sanctuary of God where you are not remembered. We have access to the most holy place through Jesus Christ, our high priest. And one day that place will be this entire earth. Remember the storyline. The failure of a holy creation gave way to the failure of a holy people. And so God sent the holy man to make a new holy people for a new holy creation. And the book of Revelation, chapter 21, shows us this. When the new Jerusalem is described in chapter 21, we're told that it's full of pure gold and precious stones. The same gold and the same stones that are named in their tabernacle. The same ones that are named in the Garden of Eden. It's in the new Jerusalem, see. The new Jerusalem is where we will be in the presence of God forever. And we will see, on that day, in that place, we will see Jesus, our high priest. Now it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, John does not explicitly say that Jesus is our high priest. That's because he doesn't have to. He just tells us what he wears. The opening of Revelation, chapter 1. Verse 12, on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And if we see a man dressed like that walk into this room, He gets our attention, right? How about our eternal worship? Jesus is our great high priest. Praise him. Praise him. Jesus is our great high priest who forever, always, every moment brings us to remembrance in the heavenly throne of God. Jesus is our great high priest who in this moment invites us to his table. And this is where at the table, Jesus, as our great, great high priest, employs us as a priestly people. Because under Jesus, our high priest, we as believers are a priesthood, the priesthood of all believers. Now look, that's not an individualistic kind of thing. The priesthood of all believers doesn't mean it's just me and God, that we don't need anyone. That's not what it means. The priesthood of believers means that we as believers help one another draw near to God by pointing to Jesus. What the priesthood of all believers means is that we together should constantly be giving Jesus to one another. Got that? That's what we do as priests together. We give Jesus 
to one another. And so here at the table, that's what it's about. Here at the table, as the pastors come to serve you, the pastors are servant priests who are serving you the priesthood. And as we eat and drink the bread and cup, it reminds us, we should think, we should understand together that we are not meant to go this alone. We need each other. And we point one another to Jesus Christ. And so this morning, this meal is for those who trust in Jesus, only for those who by faith are united to Jesus Christ. This meal is for the priesthood. It's for the priesthood who together point one another to Jesus. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.